Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we usually try something new in ethical consumption. I'm Kristen, and this episode I'm joined by Michelle Desilet, the executive director of the Orangutan Land Trust. Michelle and I have a conversation where we talk about her work with orangutan conservation, the threats that orangutans face, and crucially connected to that, the Orangutan Land Trust's approach to addressing sustainable palm oil. Uh, We hope that you'll enjoy the episode. I think it was a pretty good conversation. So here we go. Hi, Michelle. Um, I'm wondering if we could maybe start by um, getting you to explain a little bit about your own personal journey. So how how is it that you got involved with uh, orangutan conservation? Well, I've been fascinated by the primate world since I was a small child. And uh, in university, I, I dreamed of being like Diane Fossey or Jane Goodall and, and looking after great apes in the wild. And as a child, I was really fascinated with the primate world. My favorite book was Curious George when I was quite small. <laughs> and I was determined that someday in my life, I would be looking after monkeys or apes. And I followed the work of leaders in that field, such as Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, Bruti Galdikas, um, whose pioneering studies of the great apes really set in motion the need for conservation. Uh, I tried to pursue such a career um, academically, but was quite soon dissuaded by my professors that I would ever get a job in the field. So I ended up becoming a school teacher instead. <laughs> hmm. um, but my, my passion for the the great apes persisted and mm-hmm. i would spend my my um summer vacation time traveling to places like south america and africa and southeast asia to go and see these species in the wild and it was when i went to southeast asia for the first time and i volunteered to help in um following the great apes following the the orangutans in the field and and learning more about them and i met a a small little orphaned orangutan that was being held in a, a tiny cage behind a ranger's hut in the national park. Mm-hmm. And he just stole my heart. His name was Smalia, and my life was never the same after that. And eventually I met during, I, I kept going back to this, mm-hmm. this uh, project and volunteering and looking after orphan baby orangutans, which, you know, I thought there's nothing better in life than to be surrounded by these delightful animals. Um, (laughs) But the conditions at the project that we were working at were not very good. And I met there a lady called Lona Drosher Nielsen, a Danish woman who has since been made famous um, for her work in orangutan conservation. You might have seen her on uh, Orangutan um, Island or Orangutan Diary or any any number of programs that have aired globally about her work. And she and I had this crazy idea, she was volunteering at the same time, that we could go off and set up our own uh, rescue and rehabilitation center for for rank dance and do it better. And in 1998, I started out doing this in 94. In 1998, we did just that. We found the funds, we found the support, we got the memorandum of of understanding with the Indonesian government, and um, we developed what became the world's largest primate rescue project, the Nairmenting Orangutan Rehabilitation Project, operated by the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation, and so that's that's where my passion, you know, really 
you know, came to fruition. And uh, of course, we needed to find the funds to keep this organization or this project going. By that time, I had moved to the United Kingdom to settle, and mm-hmm. I created the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation UK branch to support these efforts. So those are my early days in, in orangutan conservation. It was later, around 2003, 2004, when um, I came to understand that orangutan conservation was about much more than picking up the pieces and rescuing orphaned orangutans and that we needed to look at a more holistic strategy for protecting the species. And by 2009, I had opened the Orangutan Land Trust to focus on those issues. So I'm wondering if you could maybe tell the listeners, um, you said the sort of orangutans stole your heart. Um, what, what's so wonderful about the, the species? Where do I begin? Um, <laughs> first of all, there's nothing cuter on this planet than a baby orangutan. Um, and, and that's, you know, a great part of their predicament. They're too cute for their own good. And in those early days, um, most of the orangutans that were being rescued were actually confiscations where, where these orangutans um, were being made orphaned. Their, their mothers were being killed and they were being trafficked internationally or locally kept as pets or, you know, like perhaps sold on to um, zoos that less than reputable zoos and um, tourist facilities where they would dress them up to fight as, um, you know, Thai kickboxers or something like something stupid like this. Um, So when they come to our center in the old days, I just say, because (laughs) it's not my center at this time, it belongs to the Borneo Rangtan Survival Foundation. Um, we would have to become like surrogate mothers to them. And we would learn all of their idiosyncrasies and, and their distinct personalities. And, and they, as a school teacher, I found them as distinct and as delightful and charming and lovable as, as the diversity of pupils that I had in my classroom, each with their, their different personalities. And they're, they're, oh, they're quick and clever and mischievous, and they have the most amazing sense of humor. <laughs> really? They have a sense of humor? That's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they like to play tricks on you or on one another and, and <laughs> you know, or play chase or, or any, they, they, they're the masters of their own diversion. You know, they, they, you just see them, you stand, stand back from them if they're in their forest playground and just watch them get up to the antics and don't disturb them. Don't try not to engage with them and let them do what they will do um, naturally. And, and as youngsters, they just a laugh a minute of what, what they get up to. <laughs> um, I don't want to caricature, you know, like make them into caricatures or, you know, cartoon mm-hmm. figures, but, but they are amusing. And again, that's part of the problem, you know, <laughs> that, that this um, makes them desirable for people to have as pets or, and yeah. The, the thing that, two things that most, you know, uh, keep me most connected with the, the orangutan and make me cherish the most is their capacity for forgiveness because these animals have been through the most awful situations, seeing their mothers killed before their eyes or being, you know, kept in, yeah. in deplorable conditions or, or hurt themselves. And yet, in very little time, with the right love and attention nurturing from their caretakers, 
they forget. I, I know they don't forget because they have nightmares in the night and you can only presume they're dreaming of what they remember. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they tend to forgive and, and move on and, and embrace love again. And the other thing is their resiliency. So that ties in with it. You know, they've gone through all this. And every now and then, yes, you'll have an orangutan that just can't recover from the emotional trauma. And they will just perish. They'll, they'll just slowly or quickly uh, decide not to eat and, you know, not not respond to treatment. And, and, I mean, literally die of a broken heart or die of the trauma that they've gone through. But most of these animals are so resilient and they bounce back and and again with that humor and that <laughs> love that it's like how how can you be so happy now <laughs> you know how can you be such a wonderful delightful individual after all you've gone through and and i think that has been the most endearing quality of the orangutan wow that sounds like just really uh, rewarding work and uh really interesting experience I'm curious, um, because you had mentioned starting from conservation projects and then realizing that there were sort of um, bigger challenges that needed to be addressed if um, orangutan conservation was really going to be something that that worked. Uh, so maybe could you talk to me about the the major threats that orangutans face? Yes, of course. Um, the major threats, I mean, as I said, or, or originally back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was the capture and trade of these animals, um, removing them from the wild for these reasons. But in around 2003, that's when the oil palm uh, plantations started really taking hold in the region that we were working in, central Kalimantan, in, in Borneo, in Indonesia. And suddenly we moved from these confiscations and picking up generally relatively healthy orangutans for the most part. Uh, to sending out rescue teams in the middle of the night to rush to locations several hours drive away um, on word of a orangutan in trouble in the new clearings um, of force for for the, the the expanding oil palm and these animals were found brutally brutally attacked and massacred um, because the orangutans were known to venture into these newly planted areas and, and perhaps destroy some of the young trees that had just been planted, the plantation managers would see them as an agricultural pest that needed to be eradicated. And indeed, some plantation managers put bounties on the heads of these orangutans. They would pay a local worker or a villager 10 or 20 US dollars, literally, to present the head of an orangutan. Um, and so... Yes, you know, but the people didn't have, you know, shotguns that they could cleanly, you know, they, they would take anything to hand right? to take down an orangutan. And it's not easy to take down a full-grown orangutan. Um, so the rescuers would find these, these poor souls, you know, beaten unconscious or to death with wooden planks or iron bars or tied up in netting and, and wires or, um, you know, hacked to death. Uh, with machetes, maybe shot with air gun pellets. A lot, a lot of cases that continue. Um, you know, orangutans being found with fifty or a hundred air gun pellets lodged in their bodies, and yet they survive. Uh, 
oftentimes with these horrific injuries. Um, and the worst case I saw was when they doused the orangutan in, in gasoline and, and set them alight. Oh my gosh. Um, and the lucky ones who survived were brought back to the center, or if they were quite healthy, they could be translocated immediately into a safe patch of forest. But hundreds started coming into the rescue center that needed intensive care, um, round the clock treatment to keep them alive and then ultimately to help them thrive and, and have an opportunity to return to the wild one day. So not only were we faced with this flood of victims coming in faster than we could put up cages, quite literally, we had some orangutans coming in while the boys were still putting the roofs on their, their enclosures. But then the outlet wasn't there. There was like no solution. There are limited places where you could put these orangutans safely and know that they, that forest wasn't going to be knocked down next year or in two years' time. So the challenge was to find areas that they could be safely released for the long term, but equally or perhaps more importantly, stop this this flood of victims. And that meant looking at what was driving their their displacement and the killing in, on on the ground. And that was the displacement, the the clearing of their habitat. These orangutans wouldn't find themselves in these areas and and getting into trouble if their habitat was being cleared. So that's where we said, look, we need to look at this palm oil issue. We need to see what opportunities do we have to intercede into this juggernaut of destruction and, and change the trajectory for the future of orangutans. Yeah. So I, I think this is maybe a good time to to start talking about the Orangutan Land Trust. Um, so could you maybe tell me a little bit about your organization and what it does? Our objective is to enable sustainable solutions for the long-term survival of the orangutan. So that what that means is to look for those solutions that keep orangutans alive where they are found. And in fact, most orangutans are found outside of protected areas. And in Borneo alone, over 10,000 orangutans live in areas allocated for industrial palm. We can't rescue, put in facilities, translocate tens of thousands of orangutans. This is not a solution. It might be a solution on a one-off, you know, a case-by-case basis where the orangutan is in such a position that it will die if you don't immediately remove it from, from the area, and that becomes more a welfare issue rather than conservation issue. So we work with stakeholders from government to uh, growers of oil palm to communities and, and local people to the NGOs to the consumers and the manufacturers and retailers to try to find these solutions for where the orangutan lives, and then also to support those activities that are giving an outlet for the orangutans that do need to be moved or have been moved. Um, so that might mean supporting, um, securing an area of forest in which to release orangutans, supporting um, the restoration after the fires which burn year after year um, in, in their habitat to, to provide better habitat for the orangutans, um, you know, sufficient fruiting trees to enable them to thrive, corridors to allow them to move freely and find mates and find food. So these are the areas. A lot of that means 
uh, well, it means I don't spend any more time playing with small orangutans. Um, <laughs> that that delightful and quite necessary um, work is left to the very capable hands of the local Indonesians who, who take this on. So my work has shifted from those delightful days in the forest in a hammock <laughs> to sitting in um, conference rooms in Singapore, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, New York, or London with decision makers and, and uh, supply chain members of the palm oil or timber or pulp paper supply chain and, and working to deliver these solutions. So it's a lot less sexy um, than <laughs> it used to be. Um, but nonetheless, really, really important work that, that I think we do. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to um, the issue of palm oil, what, what is the Orangutan Land Trust's uh, general approach? Um, what would you like to see? Well, the approach is knowing that conventional palm oil has proved to be a major threat to the survival of the Orangutan and its rainforest habitat and all the biodiversity that it shares in those rainforests. Our goal is to see that sustainable palm oil becomes the norm, that the standard for sustainable palm oil is rigorous, but more than that, that it's implemented and delivering tangible, positive impacts on the ground. So we're not concerned what we are concerned, but our main concern is not a piece of paper that says Company X has a target for sustainable palm oil either production or, or sourcing by such such year. Yes, that's all part of the transition. But more importantly is what does that mean? You know, is this company supporting smallholders on the ground so they can be part of the solution? Because remember, smallholders, or maybe you don't know, um, but smallholders, <laughs> or your listeners may not know, smallholders represent 40% of global production of palm oil. They've got to be included um, the transition to sustainable practices if we're really to address the impacts on biodiversity. And so all of us play a part in supporting that. So, so yes, our, our position is that all stakeholders must play their part. They have a shared responsibility in seeing that palm oil is produced sustainably. And that means no deforestation, no peat um, clearance, and no human exploitation in, in this most basic of, t of terms. Um, of course, it's much more detailed than that. All the um, principles and cri criteria um, set out by the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil. Um, to see that delivered, we need everyone from the consumer, manufacturers, retailers, play their part and make the distinction between sustainable and conventional palm oil and make the choice for sustainable palm oil. Reward those companies that are doing the right thing, provide the incentive for the companies that are unsure, not quite there, to make the move towards sustainable production. And only then can we see the rates of deforestation. We are starting to see the rates of deforestation decline uh, in, in places like Indonesia. And the science demonstrates that part of that is attributable to transition to sustainable agriculture. So, so that is our focus. Well, it's good to hear that there's some progress being made because it seems like a very difficult challenge. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, so your organization works with the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you could tell me a bit more about how you're involved and um, why you've taken the approach of being involved with that organization. I think to address this, this issue, you need to be, you need to have players that are working within. 
you need to be working alongside the industry and, and the stakeholders, but you also need the ones on the outside. So we cherish the work that non-RSPO NGOs <laughs> do in calling to task the shortcomings of RSPO or its members or where a, a company is not compliant with the standard. Um, their eyes and ears are critical to what we call continuous improvement. Um, that's not to say that the RSPO doesn't have its own um, duty of care to you know, be sure that everything's in order anyway, and they shouldn't be relying on these NGOs, but it's all part of part of the story. So we've, we think that working from within is, is our best uh, strategy. And we joined as Bornier Rankin Survival very early days of the RSPO. And we have participated in the review of the principles and criteria, those rules that illustrate what sustainable palm oil should look like both in 2013 and in 2018. And we've introduced um, new criteria in, in both cases. Um, in 2013, we, we introduced what could be loosely called the, the no-kill, zero-tolerance uh, policy, which means RSPO members must not capture, harm, kill any rare, threatened, or endangered species. Um, they must have programs to uh, educate their entire workforce in this and strong uh, policy on sanctions should anything, you know, should employee be found culpable of, of such a thing that they don't just pass it on to the local police to deal with, that they, they take uh, also take uh, actions within their company to deal with this. Um, and in 2018, we worked really, really hard to make sure that there was a strong element of, you know, a strong standard for true no deforestation and they're not not something that was vague like oh well if they're really big trees don't cut them down no i had <laughs> the proper proper no deforestation clause um we've also participated in advisory task force and setting out the new plantings procedure guidelines which basically tells you what to do or not to do where to go and not to go when you're expanding or or creating a new new plantation um, we're, uh, we sit on the complaints panel. So we deal with the, the rogues and laggards that aren't pulling their weight and, and, you know, help to deliberate what sanctions they will get, um, and, and keep the membership in line in that sense. Uh, the no deforestation task force, the high conservation value and biodiversity working group, the outreach working group. Um, so many, there's so many, like, cogs and wheels and everything going on behind the scenes to really deliver the impacts behind the, the aspiration of the standard. So RSPO is not just somebody who slaps a certificate on a company and has some paperwork behind it or something like this. It's really about working with experts, scientists, uh, uh, civil society, and so forth to really tease out the methods and strategies are going to really deliver on this. So, so we do that. We also are active in the Palm Oil Innovation Group, uh, which builds upon the standards set, set out by the RSPO and, and works on innovations in which to um, implement the standard. We are participant in the Sustainable Palm Oil Choice Platform here in uh, EQ, EU and UK to drive uh, 100% certified sustainable palm oil uptake across the EU. Uh, in 2020. 
And we also uh, initiated what's called the Pongo Alliance. That stands for the Palm Oil and NGO Alliance, which brings together some of the, well, the largest uh, players in the palm oil industry, the largest growers, um, as well as NGOs and scientists to deliver solutions for uh, allowing resilient landscapes where wildlife and people can coexist. Oh, that's a lot of things. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. I think um, something that consumers often don't realize and, and can't because there's so many initiatives going on is just how complicated each of these standards are, um, you know, behind the scenes. So it's nice to, to hear some detail from you about how that kind of thing works. Um, I was curious because part of your role is in sort of advancing um, uptake of sustainable palm oil. Um, could you maybe talk about where you think we're at as sort of a, a globe on sustainable palm oil and and what the future might look like? Okay. Um, I, I don't have like a lot of precise data and uh, at my fingertips as far as numbers. I don't, I don't retain those very good. I need spreadsheets <laughs> in front of me to do that. But I can tell you that um, here in the UK, we're quite progressive. Um, at last, last count, 79% of the palm oil that was coming into the, the UK was certified. Um, and wow. we expect that number in you know, a couple of months, there should be another updated number in that obviously shall go up. And across the EU, I think we're about that range, maybe just a slightly lower. Um, there's, there's a commitment uh, called the Amsterdam Declaration Partnership for Forests, um, which is a, a number of European countries that have signed on to declare their ambition to achieve 100% deforestation-free commodities uh, in 2020. So <laughs> the pressure is <laughs> on to get us there. Uh, in USA, I'm sorry, I don't have the figures. Um, consumption in USA is less than it is in, across the EU. In fact, the, the leading consuming countries for palm oil are China, India, Indonesia itself, its domestic consumption, uh, Pakistan, the EU, and lower down uh, uh, USA, North America, Australia, New Zealand. Um, but all these markets play a part. So for example, the sensitive markets like Europe or, or America, where there is some understanding of sustainable uh, procurement and, and that consumers are expecting their companies to not be uh, delivering products that, that support human trafficking or child labor or deforestation, that you have these multinational companies, manufacturers, often based in these, these regions, but delivering globally and sourcing globally. And so the communications from consumers, consumer action groups, NGOs in these regions propels those companies to make their commitment. And then they go to their suppliers and say, look, you know, our global commitment is sustainable. And so that it's that trajectory that moves the needle really. Sadly, at this point, only about 20% of the sustainable palm oil that's being produced, uh, of the palm oil that's being produced, excuse me, is sustainable. And that has not moved very much in recent years because, one, the companies who've made these commitments aren't following through. 
Um, they've, they've, some have made commitments saying we're going to be deforestation free by 2020 and they're not going to hit their target. And others are making new uh, claims saying, yeah, we'll be deforestation free by 2023 or 2025. They keep moving the goalposts. And this isn't good enough. And, and so we need to really demand that these companies follow through on that. The, the sustainable palm oil is out there for them to buy. There is no excuse. Well, I'm sure they can find an excuse, but uh, morally, there's no excuse for them not to be picking that up. And in fact, of that palm oil that is produced sustainably, only about half of it is being bought as sustainable. That is to say, is only being paid the premium due to sustainable suppliers. Is that because there aren't enough buyers for sustainable palm oil right now? Or Yeah, what is it? Company X says, well... Yeah, I like your palm oil, but I don't care if it's sustainable or not. I'll just pay you the going rate for conventional palm oil. Do you want to sell it or not? And yeah, if if the ones there aren't the other companies that are actually picking up this this sustainable palm oil and paying the premium, then they're not going to let it you know sit in vats yeah. and <laughs> rot. They're going to sell it, right? So it's all being moved. All that sustainable palm oil is being moved, but it's not being recognized as sustainable. And if you don't recognize it, then what incentive is there for them to remain sustainable, let alone what incentive is there of any onlooking company to pursue the cost and efforts and resources that it takes to become sustainable? There has to be you know, a, a business uh, case for sustainability. And unless we demand it as consumers, and unless the manufacturers and retailers follow through on sustainable sourcing, then these numbers aren't going to shift. So I, I'm curious about whether you have any advice for consumers that might be concerned about this issue, but you know, um, not sure how to how to approach sustainable palm oil. Um, it's it's such a complex issue, and and it's a big ask for a consumer to be, you know, become deeply informed and up to date on all of, all of this. It's you know I've been working on it for 15 years, and I'm still learning every day. Um, the the first thing. I would say is to move away from the mindset that saving orangutans is, is as easy as saying no to palm oil. How I wish that were true. I'd be seeing it <laughs> from the mountaintops if it were. I'd be like, great, silver bullet solution. Let's all, you know, <laughs> if you look at the science, you look at the figures, you look at the reality of global trade and agriculture and rising demand for oil seekers. That's not going to really deliver any positive benefit on the ground. I could talk for eons about this. Um, it could prove disastrously counterproductive if companies globally switch to alternatives, which are more land hungry, and those land hungry crops are pursued in the tropics, thereby putting more pressure on biodiversity and forests. Uh, it doesn't bear thinking about. So. Please move away from what might be well-intentioned but intellectually lazy to say, <laughs> if I just boycott palm oil, deforestation will stop. Then the next step is to understand that there's a difference between conventional palm oil, business as usual, and sustainable palm oil, and to choose the sustainable palm oil. Now, choosing might mean buying the product that has it, but that's very hard to do. I can talk about that in a second. More importantly, I think, is communicating to the brands and retailers 
that you expect no less than sustainable ingredients in the products you buy and consume. To you know, say, I really like this chocolate bar. Quick tweet to the chocolate bar company. Are you using palm oil? Is it sustainable? <laughs> I really care about orangutans. These guys keep that communication going. Let the companies know that this matters to you. Okay, the buying power, you can say, you know, buying power has its, its place, but remember, palm oil is a kind of a hidden ingredient. It might be a fraction of a percent of your end product. So buying the product may or may not get the message to the sustainability team. It might give it to the marketing team that they're doing a good job kind of thing. So as much as putting your money where your mouth is, it's, it's the communication. Now, there are some tools in North America, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo has an excellent app that allows you to uh, scan a product and, and get an idea where they are in their, their journey towards sourcing sustainable palm oil. The WWF published a few months ago a palm oil scorecard with many of your favorite brands and retailers represented on it. And it gives a, a quite detailed look at what they're doing, not only as far as sourcing sustainably, sustainably and removing deforestation, from their palm oil supply chains, but maybe if they're supporting conservation on the ground or supporting smallholders, um, you know, the, the overarching efforts towards really delivering tangible out outcomes. And that should be uh, updated before the end of the year. And the companies that scored low or medium in, in the first round of this year, uh, we're really, you know, hoping that consumers will push them to improve their scores. Um, demonstrate that the, there's, you know, really buying certified sustainable palm oil, increase their volumes, support conservation on the ground, these kinds of things. So th those are two ready tools that, that the consumer in North America can use. And there's similar tools here in the UK. And, and finally, you know, I suppose if, if you're interested in this issue, you know, Follow some of the NGOs that are working on this issue. Um, again, whether they're on the outside or on the inside. So there's a lot of orangutan organizations like uh, Sumatran Orangutan Society, Orangutan Republic, um, Borneo Orangutan Survival, Orangutan Mantras, all active in the sustainable palm oil field, um, members of RSPO. Um, they have information and can keep you up to date, um, but also the more critical uh NGOs on the outside, they can say, you know what, look, your favorite chocolate bar is just not doing its bit. You know, here's a petition. We really need to kick their butt. Um, and I would, you know, it's if if the petition is really well made and delivered to the right people, it really can make a difference. Uh, we've seen it happen. Okay. So sign petitions and be vocal with the brands that you like. Those are sort of two big approaches and then look for RSBO certified where you yeah. can? Unfortunately, the, the, the trademark doesn't appear very much on packaging. Real estate on the package is like really prime and, and the brands and retailers are like, no, I can't use that space for, for another logo or label or yeah. it's something that a lot of people don't understand or maybe get the wrong impression. Oh, palm oil, bad. Oh, put it back. No, no, it's sustainable. Really? <laughs> it, it, it opens up a Pandora's box or, you know, a bit of confusion there sometimes. So the confusion behind the meaning of the trademark, the lack of understanding of it, um, the space in the package, uh, these are all reasons why a company that is using sustainable palm oil 
may not put it on pack. And that's why I say, you know, maybe we need to look towards social media to get those answers um, or these, these various scorecards or apps that, that can give us an idea who's on the right track and who do we need to uh, avoid or, or nudge. Yeah, I'm curious about, um, is it your impression that like um, when people reach out and ask questions to companies about sustainable palm oil, like is that something that genuinely figures into their calculus later with palm yeah, oil? Yeah, it is. I mean, we we work, you know, behind the scenes, we have, you know, uh, private meetings with such companies and they say, look, you know, we're getting more and more messages like this. We're ready to move towards this. We don't want the such and such message. They struggle because there is a disconnect between the people who don't quite understand this issue saying, when are you going to remove your palm oil to the knowledge that the NGOs and experts are actually saying, well, actually you should be moving towards sustainable palm oil. And how do they communicate that to the wider consumer? So this remains a bit of a challenge, but they're getting more messages saying that people, you know, want to be assured that the product isn't contributing to these problems. And then it's a matter of communicating that sustainable supply chains is a way to ensure that. Um, so yes, it, it, it is working. It is making a difference. That's great. That's a really tangible thing people can do, I think. So. And like I said, you know, the, the, let's say it's a big multinational company. They're a member of RSPO. Uh, people in North America, let's say they have a big market in North America, are saying, look, we, we expect you to be sustainable. Well, that company has to make a commitment with RSPO to be 100% sustainable wherever they're selling in, good, in, in a time frame, certain time frame that they designate. So where India and China doesn't have the large numbers of people calling for sustainable products, they're still going to get it if that company makes that, that commitment, that change. So that's where the consumer pressure power is really having this, this global effect. It's not just the chocolate that's in your chocolate bar. It's the chocolate that's in, not the chocolate, the palm oil that's in your, well, you should be doing this for chocolate <laughs> and tea and coffee and rubber and vanilla and everything else too. <laughs> you know, the, the whole <laughs> yeah. story of sustainable palm oil goes across all commodities, really. Um, but as we're talking about palm oil, when, when you're demanding the sustainable palm oil in your chocolate bar, ultimately that should deliver sustainable palm oil in the chocolate bar of the young person in India or China. So I, I'm curious as, as well, you had mentioned um, timber and pulp and paper. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, is that a major source of um, threat for orangutans? And, and if so, is that something that the Orangutan Land Trust is working on as well? They, they remain threats, not at the degree of oil palm. Oil palm is in, in sheer scope <laughs> is, is really, um, you know, the, the pure hectare um, is, is really impactful. Um, the pulp and paper tends to focus in an area of Sumatra that orangutans are not found. And the oil palm tends to focus in uh, Kalimantan and Borneo and uh, Sabah and Sarawak in these uh, lowland, you know, often the peat swamp forest or, which is not good for, peat is not good for oil palm. They don't grow very well, but it comes cheap and people plant it there. Um, but these lowland terracotta carp forests, it's like the 
prime location to plant, and it happens to be the prime habitat for orangutans. So this intersection, so it's the intersection of the commodity with that. Mining is also a problem, and at least equal, if not more, depending on who, what scientists you speak to, is is direct hunting, the hunting and killing of orangutans, unrelated to human wildlife conflict, and people actually going out and hunting, whether to eat or just, it's. It's a problem that very few organizations are addressing. We recognize it's a huge problem. We don't have the resources to, I mean, if, if we got major funding from somebody, yeah, we can maybe direct some resources to addressing that. But where we stand right now, our resources are quite um, expended on this issue of oil palm. Yeah, for sure. So I think those were all of the the questions that I had. But um, is there is there anything else that you you wish I'd asked or that you'd like to tell listeners? I, I would just like to say to listeners, you know, there's there's great organizations really working on this issue, really supporting conservation in the field, and 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 delivering the outcomes to to protect wildlife such as the orangutan. Um, that might even include zoos. Um, I don't know how all of your listeners feel about zoos. I know that there could be mixed emotions, <laughs> but zoos do deliver, good zoos, I should say, do deliver um, mm-hmm. important support uh, and, and resources for conservation in the field, and a lot of projects can't get by without them. They also provide an avenue for, for a lot of communication uh, with over 800 million visitors a year going to uh, zoos globally. Um, so, so I would ask you to support the zoos, your listeners, support zoos and NGOs, organizations that are working on your behalf as a person who loves wildlife to really put the pieces in place to find the solutions to save these species. I know right now times are tough with the coronavirus crisis. Um, many people have work, uh, donations are not as forthcoming as they used to be. And NGOs and these projects are facing real challenges to continue to deliver. And because of coronavirus, the threats, it's another podcast, perhaps the threats <laughs> to biodiversity and forest, uh, there have been reports are likely to go up. Um, so our work is more essential than ever. Yeah. So support conservation NGOs, support um, good zoos. That's <laughs> a really great call to action. So thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. I think it's been a really interesting discussion. I've certainly learned a lot. Hopefully the listeners do too. Um, and have a, a good evening. <laughs> I hope it's restful. Well, thank you. I'm really pleased that you've taken the time to talk to me. <laughs>